Two years ago, Russia began its full-scale invasion of Ukraine. Since then, the war has killed tens of thousands of people, and millions have fled their homes. Now, as weapons dwindle and soldiers are exhausted, regions of Ukraine that were safe from Russian forces are back on the front lines. The Globe's senior international correspondent, Mark McKinnon, has been covering this conflict from the beginning. He's in Kharkiv, Ukraine, which is once again facing a barrage of shelling from Russian forces. Today, Mark tells us what the front lines of the war look like two years on, how Ukrainian soldiers are faring, and what diminishing Western support means for the war effort. I'm Manika Raman-Wilms, and this is The Decibel from The Globe and Mail. Mark, thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Manika. So you're in Kharkiv right now in in eastern Ukraine. Uh, Can you just start by telling us what's it like there? Um, it's very different being here than in Kyiv or parts of Western Ukraine where, you know, you might hear an air raid siren once a day or every second day. And, you know, occasionally you'll be kept up at night with sort of the, the noise of these drones coming in, etc. Mm-hmm. But here in Kharkiv, where the Russian border is just 30 kilometers from here, it, it's a different experience. And, and uh, you know, I think I've heard five sirens today already. Wow. And this is just because of the sheer proximity of the Russian border. Uh, the missiles get through here more often. So it, it's a city that is, uh, you know, much more scarred than the center of Kiev. Um, I was walking around the, the main square today and the big hotel uh, on the square, you know, had three floors blown off of it. The main government administration building is missing part of its roof. And, uh, you know, all the facing shopping malls have their windows blown in. And, and the people who live here, um, mm-hmm. you know, at the start of the war, a lot of them left Kharkiv um, and so early in the war, there was this sort of exodus from the city. And then after the Russian sort of withdrawal from first from the Kiev region and the big Ukrainian counteroffensive in Kharkiv, there was this sense, almost a prematurely victorious sense. People were sort of really celebrating, moving back home, starting to repair their homes. Businesses were reopening, lots of new cafes. And now it's just been the last couple of months where it really starts to feel like it's now Russia that seems to have the momentum on the front line. And for whatever reason, whether this presages another military assault on on the Kharkiv region or whether it's just simply terrorizing people, Kharkiv seems to be getting targeted quite regularly again with missiles. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like it's it's quite a tense situation there, really. Um, and, And so can I just ask, Mark, where are you staying in Kharkiv then? Choosing a hotel here is more complicated than perhaps anywhere else uh, I can think of right now. Since the war started, you know, many of us journalists avoided these big glass tower hotels and started looking for uh, more anonymous places to stay. Unfortunately, two of those that I have stayed in, one of them, the Park Hotel, I used to uh, been using as a base every time I came to Kharkiv recently, and that one took a direct hit in uh, January. And uh, you know, another place that I've stayed in frequently had a missile land right in front of us. You started to feel that these hotels were themselves and maybe even their guests, uh, the international guests who stayed there were were targets. And so this time I'm staying in uh, we have underground rooms in, in a little mini, it's called a mini hotel. We're mm-hmm. hoping it's uh, as anonymous as, as possible. But um, you know, it's definitely a place where you're more aware of. I was just chatting online with a friend uh, who didn't have time to meet today, but he was saying, you know, just always be aware of, of the closest subway station um, or the closest shelter because that could save your life. Mm. Not a message you get too often in, in Kiev these days. So, I mean, I'm wondering how this is all affecting the people who are there, right? And I, I know you've been speaking with people in, in Kharkiv, Mark, over the past few days. So so what have you heard from them? 
Well, I spent my morning in an underground school, and and uh, it's a it's a system of schools that I've moved into the subway network here because um, wow. you know for safety, uh, obviously underground is the safest place to be during a, a missile attack or a drone attack, and also just to allow the kids to sort of have a, a something like a normal school day because if you're having four or five alarms, it, it's very hard to get to the end of your lessons, and so being in the place where you're supposed to go in the case of an alarm, if being already there obviously has a very strange advantage. Although a lot of the kids are a bit mesmerized by the coming and goings of the subway noises. And, um, and it's not an ideal place to study. There's obviously no outdoor time or anything like that either. Um, and I spent the afternoon in the neighborhood of Saltivka, which is on sort of the northern... Um, sorry, there's a... Can you still hear me? I can still hear you, yeah. Okay, so my phone's been interrupted there by an air raid siren, which is just happening as we're on the phone right now. Again, I'm in a basement, so I don't have to move. Uh, Sounds okay. You're good to continue for now. Yeah, yeah, absolutely fine for me to continue the conversation. Anyways, um, (laughs) so this is life here in Kharkiv. Um, And and, and the people that I met in in the afternoon in this neighborhood of Saltivka, which was really on the front line early in the war, it's kind of where the Russian advance was stopped. Very battered neighborhood, a lot of buildings bearing big scars. And, you know, I was visiting some, some frankly, some old friends who, who left at the start of the war, uh, who came back here, as I mentioned, when they felt it was safe, although they've, in this one case, sent their son to university in Poland, because that makes it a little bit easier to deal with living in, in this dangerous place. But the number of attacks in recent weeks has them thinking about leaving again. And, and my friend Natalie said, you know, it's not a sense of deja vu, it's just prolongation. It, they, like it, it never really went away. We were getting used to it, but it never went away. Wow. All right, Mark, let's let's broaden this out a little bit and, and talk about the conflict as a whole now. How would you describe the state of the war at present? Well, back in November, December, um, Ukraine's former chief general, Valery Zaluzhny, described it as a stalemate. And that was because the Russian forces no longer had the ability to go forward. And Ukraine had launched this big counteroffensive using a lot of Western supplied tanks and other weaponry and had barely moved the front line uh, just a few kilometers. Since then, the Russians have attacked with perhaps more strength than people thought they might have in uh, these winter months. They appear to have reconstituted large numbers of of troops, and they're pushing forward in all sections of the front line right now. Uh, They recently captured the city of Avdivka, which is a very symbolic moment for a few reasons. Uh, this is a city that has been on the front line of the Donbass region literally for 10 years since the, the real start of this conflict uh, with the revolution in, in Kiev and the sort of start of this Russian-backed uprising in, in the, the southeast of Ukraine. And the annexation of Crimea then in 2014 is also... Yeah, that, that entire yeah, succession of events. You know, And so for 10 years, Ukraine had held on to this sort of uh, city right on the outskirts of, of the regional capital of Donetsk, and you know it was called a, a fortress. People spoke of it as this place that Ukraine, that, you know, showing Ukrainian defiance. So the fact that Russia has taken Avdivka um, is a big step. It's a big moment. Mm. Um, it tells you about the slow-moving, grinding pace of this conflict. But at the same time, it's definitely true that Russia is pushing forward along the entire front line, including here in the Kharkiv region. And when you say along the entire front line, like how how large a space are we talking about? So this is a very long front line, around a thousand kilometers long from the southern regions of Kherson and Zaporizhia, which are, uh, you know, among those areas that Vladimir Putin claimed to have annexed back in uh, the fall of 2022 through the Donbass region. And up here, this is kind of the northern section of the front line, the Kharkiv region. Hmm. Mark, several months ago, we were talking about this big counteroffensive coming from the Ukrainian military. Uh, What happened to that? 
You know, that's a, a point of a lot of debate here inside Ukraine and among the Western countries that work with Ukraine. There was a lot of optimism for it. And essentially, there was a, a simple plan, simple-ish plan that Ukraine was going to use all this newly acquired military might and all these newly trained troops um, that were specifically trained for this mission to push south and to cut off the Donetsk and Luhansk region, the Donbass, from Crimea, these occupied areas of Ukraine. They were going to cut them into two and thereby cut the supply road between them. We don't know exactly what went on behind closed doors, but there's a, a real sense that um, there was political pressure on the Ukrainians to do exactly that, and that some in the general staff, you know, thought it was um, foolhardy at this to without mm. air superiority to send Ukrainian troops against heavily fortified Russian positions through minefields and trenches and more minefields and more trenches. They thought the casualty rates would be too high, and so. Also, there's, you know, though it would have meant leaving potentially weak spots in other parts of this long front line if you throw everything at this southern thrust. So, the upshot was is that Ukraine didn't follow, you know, the the instruction, shall we say, it was given by the West, you know, like push by the United States. Let's be clear, to make us make us a drive south. They um, took a more moderate course that I, the general staff at the time, General Zelushny, thought would preserve more of his manpower and prevent the Russians from making gains elsewhere. Hmm. Part of, it's part of the reason that for this, Mr. General Zeluzhny was recently dismissed as the top general in Ukraine by the president, Vladimir Zelensky. And uh, Mr. Zelensky, I think, was seeing the bigger political picture about needing to deliver victories to regain territory in order to convince the West that it was worth giving more weapons and, and more financial support to Ukraine. So, I mean, this sounds like an important point here. How how significant is it that, that General Zeluzhny is, is now gone from that position? Um, it is very significant. I mean, it was it was a, a shock here. He was um, is a very very popular figure here in Ukraine. You can imagine that someone who uh, resists pressure to sort of send troops on a, into a more dangerous position they thought was justified would be popular with this man. And there were opinion polls that showed that he'd become the most trusted political figure in the country. Um, you know, I think it would be it would be fair to say that there's. A lot of people thought there was a political element to this, that he was becoming sort of a bigger, more important figure in Ukraine than the president and you know, maybe even a post-war rival. Now, for better or for worse, whatever happens next, it's very clear that this is uh, Mr. Zelensky is, is the real boss. He's in charge. Wow. And what do we know, I guess, about the, the man who's now replaced Solutiony? Uh, like, like what kind of reputation does he have? Oh, Colonel General uh, Sirsky is, you know, was effectively General Zeluzhny's deputy through all of these big battles. He was the head of the land forces, um, which meant that he was the um, person, you know, sort of directly responsible for the defense of Kiev for this liberation of the Kharkiv Oblast. I mean, he was reporting to General Zeluzhny. Um, one point that came out, you know, more through anonymous soldiers speaking to, to journalists here in Ukraine was they felt that he was the opposite of General Zeluzhny on that one point, which was that he would order his troops forward into what were seen as, you know, words like suicide missions were being used. Um, although one of the first things he did was to order uh, the retreat from Avdivka, which, you know, a, a one, a sounds chaotic according to some reports. Uh, there are talks of uh, Ukrainians having to leave behind their wounded. Um, at the same time, it, it's a move that many people thought was was overdue uh, because the city's fall was inevitable. We'll be back after this message. Well, let's talk about the troops themselves then, the people who are actually fighting this war. They have been for you know a long two years now. Uh, how are Ukrainian soldiers doing, Mark? 
Well, this is, I mean, these guys who have been fighting, the ones that I know personally have been fighting not just for two years, but really for 10 in most cases, this mm. very battle-hardened group of men and some women. And, you know, I was talking to a guy on Tuesday um, who was telling me he had so many concussions that he can't count them. Memory loss is one of the symptoms he was suffering from. And I think that's representative. I mean, these guys who haven't yet to be injured are, even if they've you know, been lucky and skilled enough to avoid that, are tired, have different types of injuries that are maybe not visible, uh, frankly, need a break, a lot of them. That's led to this debate in Ukraine about uh, a further mobilization, which is you know really the political issue of the moment, one that's currently before the Ukrainian parliament, the Rada. Okay, so let's talk a little bit more about that then. Further mobilization sounds like they need more soldiers. How how are they planning on doing that? Yeah, so General Zeluzhny, back when he was still in in his post, said that he needed, I think, 450,000 more soldiers to um, hold the line. A lot of that's not, that's not so much 450,000 additional soldiers as much as it is being able to rotate out some of those guys who've been fighting there for two years okay. or, or longer. Um, Ukraine has largely had the same people fighting this entire time, and these people are exhausted. They are done. Their families are a big political force demanding that someone else's fathers and husbands take a turn on the front line. And so when we're saying mobilization, essentially, we mean conscription, right? Like a, basically expanding who can be conscripted into, into the army? Yes. You, you, since the start of the war, any male between 18 and 60 has been prevented from leaving. But, you know, who serves has been a bit of a mystery. Um, you know, how someone gets drafted and, and their neighbor doesn't it's been very unclear. Mm. And so this this political football, which again became a very political issue between General Zeluzhny and Mr. Zelensky, General Zeluzhny asking for for more men, Mr. Zelensky being uh, not really keen on that for political reasons. He knows it'll be very, very unpopular. As you can imagine, there are lots and lots of Ukrainians who uh, don't see themselves as fighters and don't want to be sort of drafted to the front line. Mr. Zelensky has now accepted that this is something that needs to be done. And so this debate before the Rada, before the Ukrainian parliament, is very much about removing some or many of those uh, exemptions and um, widening the pool from which uh, people can be drafted. Mark, let's also talk about Western support. We've seen Zelensky meeting with prominent world leaders like U.S. President Joe Biden, U.K. Prime Minister Rishi Sunak, and he's been asking for more support. So uh, how invested in this war are international allies at this point? I think we'll see in the days ahead uh, a show of support for Mr. Zelensky around the anniversary. I think we'll see more of these sort of high profile visits we've seen in the past. And, some, you know, people are Western leaders are very good about talking about their support for uh, Ukraine and certainly diplomatically and rhetorically that, that support is there. And Canada's given a lot of financial support and, and a lot of military support as, as of the other Western allies. The willingness to keep doing that is what seems to be expiring or, or being tested right now. Um, of course, we know the, the rhetoric of Donald Trump and the United States. And we've seen here in Europe uh, financial aid being held up by basically this, the whim of a single man, the Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban. But both of them represent a, a broader undercurrent of people who are questioning how long and how much support should the West give to Ukraine. And from the people you've spoken with who are actually on the ground fighting this war, Mark, how does the decreasing support actually affect what happens on the ground? On the ground, though, I mean, on the front line, it, it, the impact is dramatic. I was speaking with uh, special forces fighters who had been on the front line in this region recently, and they said that 
you know, at the start of the day, they're, they're, each unit would have a reserve of X number of artillery shells they had to keep back for, you know, a moment where they're under threat, uh, a surprise attack or whatever, what have you. But then beyond that, they'd be given a ration of how many shells they could fire over the coming two weeks. And then you had to sit down there and do the math. Well, we fired this many shells yesterday, which means mm-hmm. we have to cut back a bit today. Or maybe yesterday was quiet, so we can fire a few more. By the same token, is that the, the Russians suddenly seem to be firing an insane, that was their word, insane amount of shells these days because of the the new artillery shells that's received from North Korea. They've got new rockets that have just been promised by Iran or delivered by Iran. We don't really know. Even the Ukrainian sort of reports produced by Western intelligence and Ukrainian military suggest that there are large numbers of sort of reconstituted Russian units, both in the south and in the east of this country. Now, how they did that? Um, yeah, I wonder, how is, how is that possible? Well, we've heard earlier in the war about sort of how, you know, Russian, you know, they did recruiting drives inside prisons. You get a pardon in exchange for uh, spending time on the front line. But also there's a big financial incentives as well now. And, uh, you know, Vladimir Putin has doubled the payment that Russia makes to ordinary soldiers here on the front line. Uh, And by some maths now, you can make two and a half times as much money fighting in Ukraine as you could compared to the average Russian annual salary. Hmm. And I mean, I've seen just, you know, wandering through the Russian internet, these crazy advertisements. Uh, one that I remember really clearly was, uh, it was just, you know, as a, an older guy sort of a, looking at his old car going, you know, I'm going to have to sell this. I can't afford to pay the bills on it anymore. And his grandson comes out of the house in a military uniform and says, don't worry, granddad, I'm going to join the army. And so the family bills are going to be paid off by sending the grandson off to fight in, you know, an aggressive war, which, you know, makes no sense at all unless, you really are um, sort of struggling economically. It seems somehow the Russian government, which has oil reserves and you know, has, has economic resources, it seems, to throw into this war. Yeah. One more thing I think we should talk about with Russia is that it's, it's currently in an election period, right? Uh, I mean, it's a highly criticized election because there's basically no opposition to, to President Vladimir Putin. Uh, but, but how is that election influencing the war? Yeah, the word election makes me cringe a little bit. And I've covered a lot of Russian elections over the years, and um, they always end the same way. And this one will be no different. The only candidate who you know spoke out against the war in any way was denied registration. So the remaining candidates are either all Mr. Putin or people who support Mr. Putin in the war. So not much of a choice for Russian voters, of course. But at the same time, um, I think Mr. Putin, he's going to want to look like things are going well. Um, he's going to want his, his troops to deliver victories. The report that I read yesterday was that um, there was an order given out for uh, Russian troops to seize the rest of the remaining part of the Luhansk Oblast that wasn't under uh, Russian control. So they could claim to control one of these uh, provinces that Mr. Putin dramatically claimed to have annexed back in 2022. Hmm. Um, there's a lot of fear, I think, when I was in Saltivka. Today, people mentioned the Russian election like they thought the next few weeks might be particularly bad because Russia would want to look like it's unbeatable so that Mr. Putin could you know, stride onto a stage on the election day on March 17th and, and genuinely look like he's moving forward, like he's, you know, that like the country is doing well under his leadership. Mm-hmm. Um, at the same time, I mean, other Russian analysts that I've spoken to say, you know, don't expect too much dramatic change. Mr. Putin doesn't actually care about Russian domestic opinion or about elections, he'll do what he thinks is the right thing to do whenever it is, despite the electoral cycle in Russia. So just lastly here, Mark, um, so what might be in store for places like Kharkiv in the coming weeks and, and really for the people who, who are living there still? 
It's, of course, really difficult to predict the future. Um, and people here talk about not being able to plan. And that's one of the messages I got was, you know, we, we plan day to day, hour by hour. And the sense of uncertainty about around exactly the question you've asked, what might Russia do? What might happen in the weeks ahead is, is it's crippling. People say that in some way, one guy I spoke to, he's a bit too old, probably to serve as a, a soldier. He said, you know, like, if I was a soldier, at least I'd have a mission each day. And someone would tell me what to do. But sitting at home with my family trying to decide, should we stay? Should we go? Should I invest in my business? Should I sell my house? Um, housing prices, you can imagine, are quite low. So it's not a great time to be selling your house, but maybe this is as good as they're going to get. Um, so people don't know what the future holds. And certainly if, if you know, this city, whatever happens next, it, it's right on the firing line. Mark, thank you so much for your work here and for taking the time to be here today. Thank you so much. If you'd like to hear more, The Globe is doing a live Q&A with Mark this Saturday at 10 a.m. Eastern. You can find the link in our episode description. That's it for today. I'm Manika Raman-Wells. Our producers are Madeline White, Cheryl Sutherland, and Rachel Levy-McLaughlin. David Crosby edits the show. Adrian Chung is our senior producer, and Angela Pachenza is our executive editor. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll talk to you next week.